you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're in Acts chapter 1, and we're in our study of the ascension. And I want you to see one key thought as we begin today. And so look at this next slide, and there in your notes, the idea is this. The ascension is the hinge. It is the hinge on which all redemptive history turns. And in the beginning of this study, this is the third lesson, we've talked about there's only two historical records of the ascension and what gospel author writes about it. Luke, and it's in Luke-Acts. And last week we saw the ending of Luke speaks of the ascension. And we will see today in Acts chapter 1, the beginning of Acts speaks of the ascension. So I thought about it this way. You ever had those children's pop-up books? Right, So your children's pop-up books, well, Luke-Acts is a pop-up book. And when you open up Luke-Acts, in the middle pops up the ascension. Jesus ascending into heaven. And, and, and Luke wants us to see that because the reason he ends Luke with the ascension and begins Acts is because in the ascension, Jesus begins his ministry in heaven and continues his ministry on earth. The ascension does those two things. But to see that, you've got to see Luke 24 with Acts 1. So we saw last week the ascension begins his ministry in heaven. But in Acts chapter 1, the idea is he's going to continue his ministry on earth from heaven. And that's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. And last week when we saw the ascension in Luke 24, we see Jesus going up and his hands were where? His hands were up and his mouth was open, giving a blessing as he was ascending. And I still can't get over that, that Jesus' blessing never ends. It never ends. And then I thought about, and we didn't even talk about this last week, thought, thought about Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So you take Luke 24, he's blessing as he's going up, and he's still up there blessing us with every spiritual blessing. He is the ascended Lord of the uplifted hands and the unending blessing. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's awesome stuff. As one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson, puts it, he did not leave them houses and lands. He left his blessing. And that's far better than anything else the Lord could have left us. So here we are in Acts chapter 1. And everything I've just kind of told you about the beginning and the continuing is in verses 1 and 2. So let's read that together. It says... The first account I composed, Theophilus, and what would be that first account? Luke, Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus, and here's the key word, all that Jesus, what? Began to do and teach. That means he began it, but he's continuing it, and that's what the book of Acts is about. All that he began and do to teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given 
written orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, that basically summarizes the Gospel of Luke and particularly what we studied last week, Luke 24, 50 through 53. And so Luke ends with Jesus' earthly ministry as he begins his heavenly ministry, and Acts begins with Jesus' ascension as he continues his earthly ministry. So here's what we're going to do. Let's read the rest of this chapter 1 to the ascension. So look at verse 3. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. So you've got humiliation, suffering, exaltation, resurrection appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, they're gathered in a group, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is the 40th day. It will be 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. So not many days means it will be 10 days. So, so, or as some uh, New King James says, therefore, when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, no, you idiots. You got it all wrong. No, I'm sorry. We'll get to that in a moment. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that includes Peru, right? That's where we're going. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up, lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up, from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, today I was going to look at that ascension 9 through 11, and then I realized this. It says, verse 9, look at verse 9, after he had said these things. And so I want to look at verses 3 through 8 this morning. Because while this ascension is the pop-up in the middle of Luke-Acts, there is this other interlude, this other gap of 40 days of ministry. And so often we talk about Easter and the resurrection, and the ascension gets tagged on. So what's the significance of this 40-day ministry? And that's what I want to talk about to set up the rest of our study of the ascension. And here's... The thought, Jesus' 40-day ministry between his resurrection and his ascension. If the ascension is overlooked, we talked about in our first lesson, 
Well, the 40 days of ministry is all but forgotten oftentimes. We just rush to get to the Great Commission, or we rush to move into the rest of Acts. Now, 40 days of ministry. This raises all sorts of weird, wild questions, right? For instance, where did Jesus hang out for 40 days? You know, was he beaming, you know, beam me up, Father, beam me down, Father? I mean, where was he living? What was he doing? Interesting, right? I don't know. Because he's, he's got a resurrected body, but he's not yet glorified. So what, where's he existing? Now, this is debated, and we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But here's some things we do know. It wasn't like the good old days when he got the disciples together and they hung out in Peter's house. You know, and they just hung out. Because when Mary goes to cling on to him and hug on to him, he says, stop clinging. I have not yet ascended. We also know Jesus could eat with his nail-scarred hands. And yet he could enter locked rooms suddenly appearing. The bottom line is this. Wherever Jesus is and whatever he's doing, he's not yet ascended, he's not yet glorified, and he's not yet seated at the Father's right hand. Another Puritan dude by the name of John Hurrian uh, said this, and I'm going to paraphrase his old English. The 40-day period can raise a lot of curious questions that you don't want to pay much attention to. Okay, And the point is this, focus on what's revealed not what's not revealed, okay? And what's revealed is verses 3 through 8. So that's what we're going to look at. Now, why 40 days? You ever thought about that? Why 40 days? Because he could have went up at any point. Well, the number 40 in the Bible emphasizes sufficient time to accomplish God's purposes. The number 40, sufficient time, to accomplish God's purpose. Think about it. The flood lasted how long? 40 days. Sufficient time to judge all the earth. Moses' life is summed up in 40, uh, three sets of 40 years. First 40 years in Egypt. Sufficient time to think he was somebody. 40 years in the wilderness. Sufficient time to learn he was a nobody. 40 years leading Israel into the promised land, 40 years to learn that God can use anybody. So this time of 40 is important. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, sufficient time to test them and for them to fail. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, sufficient time to be tempted and to succeed where Israel failed. So what's going on here? 40 days is sufficient time to do the following five activities before the ascension. So let's look at these five activities, all right? And we're going to focus on one of them, but let's, let's move through the ones that are, we're, we're, we're more familiar with. So here's number one. The first thing that, that Jesus does in these 40 days is that Jesus proves his bodily resurrection. He proves his bodily resurrection. That's in the first part of verse 3. He presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing what? Proofs. 
appearing to them over a period of 40 days. So he didn't just hang out for the whole 40 days. He was appearing and he would appear. Now, we know in the Bible there are at least 11, maybe 12 of these appearances are revealed. All right. And I told you, you can go online, uh, uh, wearelifebridge.com, close encounters of the real kind. We go through these and we look at these appearances. We're familiar. We do this at Easter all the time, right? It allowed them, allowed the disciples to become the apostles who were firsthand witnesses. He saw, they saw him. They talked with him. They walked with him to Emmaus. They ate with him. They even had a fish fry on the seashore. Uh, He gave them fishing instructions, and then he gave them forgiveness to the apostle Peter, convincing proofs. So what's the big deal? Here's what I want you to see. And here's what God wants us to see. The same physical body of the incarnation died in the crucifixion, rose in the resurrection, and ascended in the ascension. Same physical body. So when Jesus was on the cross, as some cults teach, he didn't become an angel in a different person. When he resurrected, he didn't resurrect as a spirit or an angel as other cults teach. When he ascended, it wasn't a spiritual ascension to where it was like a ghost going up there. No, a physical body. The real human body of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Number two, second thing that he does in this time, is that the risen king, the risen king teaches concerning God's kingdom. And on that physical resurrection, we're going to get into that in the ascension. So just hold that thought as we continue to study. But here's what he does. He teaches concerning God's kingdom. Notice verse 3 in your Bibles. And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, what question does that beg? What, what, what question? Yeah, what was he? Okay, he's teaching the things of the kingdom of God. What things is he talking about? And you know what's tempting to do, Carmen? It's tempting to say he taught about the kingdom of God, whatever I believe about the kingdom of God. Okay. So what, what did he teach? Well, I can tell you that. It's what I believe. The only problem with the kingdom of God is nearly every scholar has a different idea of what the kingdom of God is. You know, you want to start a good discussion, say, hey, what is the kingdom of God? And people debate, and they, I mean, there's books and books and books. Now, during COVID, or at the end of COVID, I did a 10-week study of God's big story. And here's everything that I know about the kingdom of God. Okay, and we showed it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, Leland joined with us in that study online. So here it is. In God's big story, the kingdom of God is this. God's presence ruling with God's people over God's place through God's person by God's power for God's purpose. Now, here's what happens. The majority view of the kingdom of God today, we're doing a little theology today, is they limit it to this, God's presence ruling. The kingdom is this abstract spiritual ruling. Well, that's a part of the answer, but it's not the whole answer because you can't have God ruling 
unless he's ruling over a what? A people. And what kingdom doesn't have a realm? Are you with me? And that realm is centered on earth through God's mediator. And who is God's person that will ultimately rule? Jesus Christ. And what is God's power by which he rules? The Holy Spirit. And what is God's purpose for which he rules? His glory and the good of his people spread out over all the earth. So there's, there's, you know, I don't know what he was saying about that, but he was saying stuff about that. Now, let me simplify it a little bit. Kingdom expectations. After the humiliation of the suffering servant, crucifixion, and the exaltation of the sovereign Savior, resurrection. After that, if you read through the servant songs of Isaiah, I'm just trying to simplify this a little bit. There's four servant songs, and it talks about the humiliation of the servant and then the unexpected exaltation as a sovereign king and Savior. Here's the three things that happens. Number one, receiving the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Receiving the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Because the last covenant that will fulfill all the covenants is the new covenant. And when Jesus, through his humiliation and exaltation, fulfills that covenant, the new covenant will come. And what is the number one blessing of the new covenant? Holy Spirit. New heart. New start. Because of a new spirit within you. Okay? Secondly, restoring the kingdom to Israel. If you read through the servant songs, it continually talks about restoring the kingdom to ethnic Israel. You can't miss it. It's there, repeated. I challenge you to read it. Third thing that you see is reaching the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Okay, are you ready for something? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when you read the servant songs of Isaiah that talk about the ends of the earth and you read them in Greek, it's the same Greek phrase as Acts 1.8, witnesses unto the ends of the earth. Luke cannot be any more clear that I'm connecting this to the servant songs of Isaiah, all right? And by the way, this is a freebie. Luke 1, when Simeon, Elizabeth, and they all prophesize about the birth of Christ, their wording is all saturated from the servant songs and from the book of Isaiah. So here's the idea. So here's, here's the Old Testament expectation. Servant is humiliated. He's then exalted as sovereign. There is a receiving of the Holy Spirit as the new covenant. There is a restoring of the kingdom, and there's the reaching of the Gentiles. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 49. I'll, we're not going to read all four servant songs. You do that. But I want you to show you one that ties all three of these ideas so that you know I'm not making this up. Isaiah 49, 5 through 7. Are you ready? Isaiah 49, 5 through 7. Beautiful stuff. 
And by the way, if you want a whole study of the servant songs during COVID, I taught it right down here, did I not? And uh, the, the Ruckles were the videotape, and my wife was my audience. So if you really want to know anything about this, just ask Gwen, because I know she remembers all of it, of the outstanding teaching. So that, too, is online. For Isaiah 49, 5 through 7. Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Bing, 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 bing. Incarnation, incarnation. Right? To bring, but to do what? To bring Jacob. Oop, 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 oop. Jacob's name is Israel. To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. That's my power. God's person with God's power. He says, he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant? This is the father speaking to the son. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up, ding, 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 the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of, ding, 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 Israel? I will also, see, here's what he's saying. You think it's a big deal for me to restore the scattered tribes? We don't even know who the 10 tribes are anymore. They've never, they never returned. That's a big deal. You know what? I'm not only going to restore Israel, but I'm going to do something else. I will also make you a light to the ding, 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 ding nations so that my salvation may reach. There it is. Ding, 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 ding to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1, 8 in Greek, the exact same phrase. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, humiliation of Christ, to the abhorred one by the nation, rejected by Israel, to the servant of rulers. That's his humiliation. Kings will see and arise. That's exaltation. Princes will also bow down. You will be the despised and yet you will be the exalted because the Lord who is what? Faithful. The Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in the favorable time, I have answered you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And now here it comes. I will keep you and give you for a what? What's it say? A covenant. A covenant. There there they all are. They're all three there. And what did Jesus say at the Last Supper? He said, this is the blood of of my covenant. What covenant? The new covenant that's going to fulfill all the covenants, that's going to enable the restoring of the kingdom of Israel, that's going to enable reaching the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Now, back to Acts 1. It's a crazy day today. Back to Acts 1. Guess what? In Acts 1, the same three expectations unfold in Acts 1. Because what happens? In verses 4 through 5, what does he promise? The receiving of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, what do they ask about? The restoring of the kingdom. Not a dumb question. It's the logical question if you know the book of Isaiah. Oh, you're promising the Spirit? That must be the restoring. And then what follows in 7 and 8 is Jesus says, 
reaching the Gentiles. So the expectation is unfolded in Acts 1, but it's not quite what they expected. And yet, what I just read to you in Isaiah, Israel is going to reject the suffering servant. And that throws a twist into the plan. One that God knew and predestined from the beginning, but it's different. And it was unexpected. So think about this. The Messiah Messiah has risen. He's talking about receiving the Holy Spirit. The most natural thing is to think the restoring of Israel and the reaching of the nations. But instead, so here's what Jesus did. He came and he preached this. In the Gospels, he preached, the kingdom is near because the king is here. And the only problem was he was rejected by Israel. He was crucified by the Gentiles, right? But he rose again. And now he's talking about the spirit. What's the most logical thing? He's going to restore the kingdom to Israel now. This must be it. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The risen king is now here, so the kingdom will be here too. It is the most logical, the most biblical, the most spiritual thing to ask. And as if on cue, number three, the risen king commands them to wait for the Spirit's coming. Wait for the Spirit's coming. It's happening. He's been exalted. The Spirit is coming. We talked about this last week. We will do a whole lesson on the giving of the Spirit in this ascension study. Verses 4 and 5. Gathering together, he commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which you have heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Can you sense the excitement? These guys are saturated in Isaiah. They see it coming. What's next? What's next? Number four, the risen king answers the question, answers their question about kingdom restoration to Israel. I don't think I wrote, wrote that very well. Oh, there you go. Better, it's better up here than even on my notes. The risen king answers the question about Israel's kingdom restoration. So look at verse 6. So when they had come together. Okay, so he's made this promise. Spirit's coming. And he's gathering together. They began asking him or they kept on asking him saying this question. Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, it is hard to believe that such a question could be so controversial. But it's a fact. The disciples' question is one of the most controversial questions in all the Bible and in all of theology. Okay? And here's why. It raises all these issues. You say, Chris, I've never thought one of those things. And I'm not sure any of those things has anything to do with my ordinary life. Well, let me say one thing, and I say this graciously to you. The Bible isn't centered on you or me. It's centered on God's purposes and plans. And so the reason I take you through this stuff is so that you see life from God's perspective. These questions do come up, and you need to familiarize yourself with them. Is there a future for the nation of Israel 
in God's kingdom plan? Is, are you restoring it this time? Does Jesus fulfill all of God's covenant promises in a way that permanently sets aside the nation of Israel? Does the church forever replace Israel as God's covenant people? And is there a future restoration for the nation of Israel, even though the church presently enjoys Israel's covenant blessings? Every spiritual blessing is ours that was promised to Abraham, David, and Israel. So this is the controversy. Let me make it as simple as I can. Number one, many see the question as carnal. Many see this question as carnal. The disciples were misguided, or worse, they were wrong-headed to ask this. Now, the disciples get a lot of abuse by commentators and pastors and scholars, but I don't think they get any more abuse than what is said about them because they ask this question. You know, don't your professors tell you, Sarah, there's never a dumb question, right? Ask your questions. Well, apparently... Many scholars think there are dumb questions, okay? And they think this is carnal. They see in this question, all we want is a political, earthly kingdom. We don't want your spiritual kingdom. We want a political one. We want to overthrow these Romans. Many who see no future for the nation of Israel claim this question is misguided or wrong-headed. Misguided because it's rooted in wrong motives. Wrong-headed wrong-headed because Jesus just spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom and the assumption is it was a spiritual kingdom and so you dummies didn't get it and you're asking something after I've taught you for 40 days. Now that was likely before the resurrection. How likely is it now? Okay, that's the question. Now just how bad does it get? Many who think this question is a bad question, a carnal question, they love to quote John Calvin who said this, There are as many errors in, their, in this question as there are words. Well, in Greek, there's 11 words in the question. So, you know, and this guy gets, he, old, old John, he gets quoted by everybody on this. One expositor goes so far as to say this, The 11 were still asking questions which from our vantage point sound hopelessly naive. They all seemed earthbound and narrow-minded in their expectations. He goes on to say, it, must, it may seem almost incredible to us that the disciples could get things so utterly wrong at this point, but they did. And you know what's wrong with saying that? Is you're putting these guys way down, and as you say that, who are you lifting up? Us, with our superior understanding of the kingdom. They were just taught by the risen Lord, okay? Think about this. He goes on to say he calls them misguided. And finally, he claims it is very clear, and I quote, that the disciples did not understand the nature of the purposes of Jesus Christ for them or for the world. Despite all the teachings they had received directly from the master teacher himself, they were astonishingly slow to learn. Another expositor, and these are great men, great men of God, great expositors. We don't always get it right. None of us get That's why you got to go to the Bible. I'm not giving you my view. I'm giving you what I see in the Bible. So listen to what he says. Another expositor. 
The mistake they made was to misunderstand both the nature of the kingdom and the relation between the kingdom and the spirit. Their question, now listen to this, must have filled Jesus with dismay. They, were they still so lacking in perception? He goes on to say, Jesus cor- corrected their mistaken notions of the kingdom's nature, extent, and arrival. Okay. That's the majority opinion. You'll find it all over the place. Okay. But there are others. Number two. There are others who see the question is not carnal, but it's crucial. And it's crucial because the disciples were being logical, they were being biblical, and they were being spiritual. So let me see if I can show that to you. Why do I say they're being logical? Well, I've tried to show you that if you read through the, the, the servant songs of Isaiah, you would expect what? You would expect... Fulfillment of the new covenant, reception of the spirit, restoration of Israel, reaching the Gentiles. So the logical question after Jesus says, not many days from now you're going to get the spirit. What would be the most logical thing to think? Are you at this time restoring the kingdom? Okay. Plus, even in the grammar in your Bibles, in the New American Standard, verse 6 says, So when they had come together, spirit, oh, Restoration of the kingdom. New King James translates it even more clear. Therefore, when they had come together, because he's mentioning reception of the spirit, he must going to talk about restoring the kingdom. So it's logical. Secondly, it's biblical. And I showed you out of the servant songs. I gave you all the verses. You read. You come to your conclusions. Okay. But I read you at least Isaiah 49. It's spiritual. Now here, I, want, I wish we could develop this. The idea is these earthly, foolish, dull, slow-learning disciples are just not in tune with Jesus and the Spirit. And yet, you know what? You go to the Gospel of Luke, and you go to Luke 1, 2, and 3, the Christmas stories, and all these men and women are filled with the Spirit, at the, at the birth of Jesus, and they're just spouting Isaiah's promises about restoring Israel, restoring Israel's king, bringing together the tribes. Were they carnal? No, they were spirit. And that's the beginning of Luke. And now we are at the beginning of Acts, and they're asking the very things that Simeon, Elizabeth, Mary, they all prophesied these things. Now, either those people are carnal or they're spiritual. But if they're spiritual, why are the disciples carnal for asking the same question? Unless your theological system demands that the kingdom is always spiritual and has no place for earthly, ethnic Israel. Okay. You got it? I don't know. You got to ask. So, it's spiritual. I wish I, I, I Well, let me just say this. If this was a spiritual question, uh, a, a, a carnal question, and Jesus corrects it in Acts 1, then why do we go to Acts 3, after the spirits come down, and Peter preaches the same thing in Acts 3? 
Okay, so what are you talking about, Chris? Turn to Acts chapter 3. It's going to be close, but I think we can do this today. Look at Acts 3, 17 through 21. Acts 3, 17 through 21. Jesus, uh, Peter is preaching to Jews. To Jews. And this is what he says. Verse 17. And now, brethren, my fellow Jews, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as you rulers did also, what crucifying, rejecting Messiah. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer... He is thus fulfilled. Humiliation. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that what? When Israel repents, in order that times of refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. So there's a hardening of Israel. Jesus is in heaven. Israel's rejecting them. And but when Israel repents, the Lord will return and there will be times of refreshing about which God spoke by the mouth of all his prophets from ancient time. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying Abraham, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, that is the Jews, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from his wicked ways. So he preaches to the Jews after the Spirit has come, that there is a future restoration of the nation, but the nation must repent. In the meantime, any individual Jew who hears the gospel can repent and be saved. Thus, the Apostle Paul, Barnabas, Peter, many of them. But there's a future for the nation. So, who is right? Is the question a carnal one? Or is it a crucial one? Even one of the expositors I quoted who thinks it's carnal admits he is following a certain theological system and viewing this question from that perspective. But beloved, systems are organized by men to dot every I and cross every T. And one thing I know after 33 plus 35, 6, 7 years of studying the Bible, you know, you can't cross every eye. Yeah, you can't even do that, okay? You can't do this, okay? Because every system has holes, okay? And I don't know how Acts 1 fits into all the systems, but I know what Acts 1 means based on the text. Now, can I explain everything in Revelation in light of Acts 1? No, I cannot. But you just got to take it one passage at a time and compare Scripture with Scripture. Are you with me? And I'm not going to ignore what it's saying because it doesn't fit in, the, in a system created by men or because the majority says I'm wrong. Okay? Because there's one, another thing you kind of figure out in church history. People get things wrong. They get things right. And, they just, and we keep going back to what? Scripture. Scripture. 
Got to go back to Scripture. So let's look at five observations of this question. We'll just move through this quickly. And just you tell me if you see carnality or crucial thinking, logical thinking. First of all, what, the first word they come up with is Lord. Now, who are they talking? This, the, this isn't the goofy disciples of the Gospels. This is the disciples who are now talking to the risen Lord. They know who they're talking to, the risen Lord. Is it at this time? The Greek word for time there is chronos. You get the English idea of chronology. Is this the time? They didn't have watches, but that's, this is what they're doing. Is this the time? Is this the time period? Now, let me be clear on what they're not saying. Don't read into this question. They're not setting dates to sell books or make movies. They're not manipulating Jesus to satisfy their carnal desires. They're simply saying, what? Is this the time? And they are not calling for a political revolution by fleshly means. They don't say, is this the time you're going to crush Rome? That's not in there. That's not what they say. You say, Chris, how can, are you sure? Yeah, look at what the next thing. Is this the time you are restoring? See, they don't say, hey, is this the time where we get to get in on crushing the Romans? Do we get to do this now? No, they're saying, they're submitting. They're saying, Lord, is this the time when you are restoring present tense point being? We've had 40 days of unbelievable stuff, and it sure seems like you're fulfilling the Old Testament literally. Are you restoring now? Is this the time? Lord, we know you'll do it one day. Is today the day? Is this the time period? And what are they asking about? The kingdom of Israel. Luke starts his gospel with it. Luke is still talking about it. it it's, 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 it's a natural thing to think of the restoration and redemption of Israel. And then finally, Israel. He's ta- they're talking about an ethnic nation. Not a spiritual remnant. The disciples' question is controversial, but it's not carnal. It's crucial because it's logical, biblical, and spiritual. How does Jesus answer them? Let's look. The risen king, his answer is not a rebuke, but a refusal to give timing. Now, here's the carnal theory. These guys, and I'm being, you know, facetious, but, you know, these guys are dummies. And I got to straighten them out. You know? Now, when your kids ask you a foolish question, is it pretty clear in how you answer them? You know, basically, a good parent's going to say, that's a foolish question. Stop asking that. Stop it. That's foolish. Especially if you taught them. For 40 days, the opposite of what they're asking. But what does Jesus say? Notice what he says, verse 6. His answer is twofold. Verse 6, and then 7, and, or I'm sorry, uh, not 6. His answer is twofold. Verse 7 and verse 8 are the two answers. Let's focus on the first part. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
Now, folks, that is not a rebuke. That is just not a rebuke. It's a refusal to give them the timing. Is now the time? I refuse to give you the time, but I am not rebuking you for doing that. Contrary to some who take the Lord's answer, it's not a rebuke for asking about the restoration. Jesus doesn't reject the concern of the question. He corrects the timing of the question. Let me give you this illustration. I try to think of illustrations. So you tell your kids, we're going to Disneyland. We're going to Disney World. Okay? Maybe your kid's Mahomes and he just won the Super Bowl. He's going to Disney World. Mom, Dad, is today the day we're going to Disney World? Why do parents not tell their kids when they're going on Disney World trips? They'll be asking them all the time, is today the day? Is today the day? And you can tell them, is today the day? And if you say, if, if a parent would answer them in this way, it's not for you to know the day when we go to Disney World. Are they rebuking their kid? No. Are they telling their kid you're not going to Disney World? No. Are they saying you shouldn't expect Disney World to happen at some point? No, I promised you we would go. Well, is now the day? No, it's not for you to know the day, which is why smart parents don't tell them they're going until at the last minute. Okay? Which the Father has fixed. It's going to happen. But it's not for you to know when it happens. So let me give you... So Jesus doesn't say this. Your motives are wrong. You're being carnal. You're being political. You're being nationalistic. Stop being so illogical, unbiblical, and unspiritual. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say stop being so stubborn in your hope for restoring the kingdom of Israel as a nation. He says none of those things. Instead, he says two things. The timing of the coming ages is not for you to know. The timing of the coming... And look at what he says. He not only says times, but he says epochs. So he says, I'm going to expand your question and say, you not only get to know the time period, but you don't get to know when the next age is coming. You don't get to know that. Why? Number two. The timing of the coming age is sovereignly fixed by the Father alone. And, of course, in the Gospels, he says, not even the Son in his humanity knows. Nevertheless, he does do this, okay? He does do this. He redirects them in verse 8, and this is the fifth point. Okay, here's the fifth point. The risen king commissions the church... To reach the nations. He doesn't rebuke. He redirects. He says, what you've asked is not wrong. But it's not for you to know. It's going to happen. It's fixed by the Father. Your question is legit. And here's my answer. You can't know that timing. But let me redirect you to what's going on in this age. And in this age, verse 8, but, strong contrast, but, you can't know verse 7, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the Isaiah remotest parts of the earth. 
Now, what through, what through from their perspective, God's plan off? Israel rejected their Messiah. Did that throw God's plan off? No, God knew all along. This isn't plan B. Okay, Israel screwed up. Plan B, church, go reach the world. No, he knew. But if you just read the Old Testament, you would expect Israel to receive their Messiah, to repent. And so he's basically telling them, your question is good and it will happen. But now is not that age. Now is the church age where we reach the nations. And you say, Chris, why did you go through this? Well, I kind of wondered all week. But listen to me. Listen to me. We have got to understand, God, our pain, God is near to hear your pain. We prayed for Blake this week, and God answered, right? We don't know the outcome, but, and she had some spiritual conversations with Blake, okay? God's near to hear that, but folks, he's not focused on us. He's focused on his greater plan, and your hurt and your pain fit into that plan. But you've got to learn this stuff. Because this is what God is doing. Turn off Fox. Turn off CNN. Open your Bibles and see what God is doing. Amen? Now, here's why I taught this. Because the next thing, look at verse 9 now. This is where we began this lesson. Verse 9. And after these things comes the ascension. Okay, I didn't give you two. two, two. Go to the next thing. Give you the Lord not only redirects them, but then he reminds them. And here's the beauty. He reminds them, you have been blessed to be a blessing. Abraham, you're getting the greatest kingdom blessing, even though the kingdom is not on earth. You get the Holy Spirit. But folks, you've been blessed to be a blessing to the nations. After these things, he ascends. And you know what that ascension tells us? Two things are going to happen. The nations are going to be reached. And number two, I hope you're convinced today, Israel is going to be restored. Because you know why? We're going upstairs. We're going through a study of Abraham, and God keeps promising Abraham all sorts of literal, physical things. And listen, Isaiah's prediction of the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the humiliation and resurrection have all been literally fulfilled. Why in the world would we think now the promises to Israel are going to be only spiritually fulfilled? And what did Jesus, what, what does Jesus say at the end of this? The, or not Jesus, the two angels. See that physical body going up? That physical body's coming down. We should expect a physical, spiritual, glorified fulfillment. Of all of God's promises. Because listen, if God can lie to Israel, then he can lie to you. If God can break faith with Israel, he can break faith with any nation and with any person. But the beauty of God's plan is the ascension guarantees the nations can be reached. So what did we do? We started our class praying for missionaries at the ends of the earth. Emma's going to go into God knows, you know, the, the promised land, according to Esther, but, you know, of Peru, and reach people. The ascension guarantees that. But you know what? 
after the last Gentile gets saved, the times of refreshing will come. The Lord will come. They will look up and they will see him whom they have crucified. And they will repent as the nation with with the sword of the Antichrist at their throat. Finally, the devil will almost extinct, make Israel extinct, and they will repent, and the kingdom blessings will flow. And Paul says, you think they're rejecting Christ has brought blessings to the church? You wait to see what happens in this universe when they receive Christ as a nation. The best is yet to come. The ascension guarantees it. Okay, by God's grace, we made it. Let's pray. Father, a lot to take in. But you have given us versions of Bibles more than most the world has. God, humble us to study your word. Think through, and it's hard, and it's confusing, and we don't get it all right. But we can see your plan, and we have a place in it. May everyone leave here confident that you're a promise keeper. And that your purposes are being fulfilled. And you will keep your promises to us just as one day you will keep them to the nation of Israel. And we count on it because you have ascended to the right hand of the Father. In his name we pray. Amen.